Hi, everyone. Quick update before you get to the rest of the episode. This is Harmony, by the way. We, throughout this episode, equated the Dominican Republic to the island of Dominica. Dominica is a separate island, and it is not the Dominican Republic, and we did not know that while recording. So please forgive the mistake, and we're very sorry, and we are going to promise to be better geographers in the future. All right. Bye. And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class that you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. This week is another bite-sized bits, so, uh, you know, expect the same chaos that you've been treated to through the rest of this series. It's probably just going to keep going. Yes. This week we're doing 1950, and we are doing Phyllis Shand Alfrey, who is a figure not many people know about, but she was a really important and very beautiful, in terms of writing, writer from the Caribbean. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't heard of her before starting to do some research on this episode, which means that my knowledge about her is quite limited, but she is actually a really cool character, although also slightly a conflicting character in some ways, too. I see character like she wasn't a real person obviously she was but just like looking back on her life she was in some ways like super cool and super revolutionary and then in other ways didn't necessarily seem to apply her like ideology to herself necessarily uh which was interesting to to see she's also kind of hard during an initial google search to get information out of so i'm I will we'll talk more about her conflict in a bit, but just to kind of give everyone a biography, Phyllis Shind Alfrey was a white Dominican woman. So she came from a colonialist family and she had been, her family had been in the Dominican Republic or what was then known as Dominica for about 300 years, I believe. Mm-hmm. And she is well known because she, in that area, because she founded the oldest political party in Dominica called the Dominica Labor Party. And she was a extreme radical, despite being a very privileged woman who grew up, you know, in a white colonialist family who didn't necessarily share her ideals. But she did die a writer. She died an editor of a newspaper. And she didn't necessarily die. I mean, she, she didn't make money throughout her life at all. So I don't know. I don't know if she necessarily followed in her family's footsteps in terms of wealth achievement or anything like that. And her writing was really popular for a time. She was a contemporary of George Orwell. You know, she was published in the Tribune, which was a British newspaper, magazine, journal sort of thing that had a lot of like leftist politics going on at the time. And she was well known, but none of her work really beyond one novel that she wrote 
circulated past her time period. So it's really hard to find in print versions of her work today. Yeah, going off of that, we're reading two of her poems today. And of all of her work, her poetry is probably like absolutely the least known of all of it, which is actually super interesting. But she essentially talked about her poetry as being like the truth of herself like her poetry was she felt was in many ways her most important kind of um what is the word i'm looking for her most important contribution in a lot of ways i think because it was like a a mix of the art form that she so clearly loved and practiced and had a lot to do with her politics simultaneously the only ever publication of her poetry was called love for an island and i think it came out in 2014 and even that didn't circulate very very widely no But the idea of love for an island is really what drives, I think, both of the poems that we're looking at today, as well as her life. Like, at the end of the day, she was a staunch believer in the possibility and the she just really believed in Dominica in general and like very much loved the place that she lived, even though she also saw the the conflicts of colonialism and like the the detriments of it as well which i found especially in my poem that we'll be talking about nocturne was really kind of a present theme throughout that or at least that's how i read it but she was just a very interesting lady that has kind of fallen out of the face of history in many ways yeah which if we're looking because we're looking at her poetry and i actually found her through the book love is an island which wasn't widely circulated and was really hard to find by the way It's just, it's so beautiful. And she did really love Dominica, which was part of why we chose her because 1950s, this was supposed to be our, we were going to publish this episode in April and now we're recording it on May Day, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But this was supposed to be our climate month. So we were really looking for something published in the 1950s that had to do with the environment. And the Caribbean is such a rich environment and she so clearly loves it. And it really comes out in a lot of her work. So that is how I found her. And it's beautiful. But she also was like a really important figure in the Dominica, the Dominican history. She worked a lot with different peasantry. And so I think that I couldn't find a lot about her thoughts on race, but I know that she categorized her father as a racist and said that like he wouldn't allow her to receive school with Black children because it would soil her purity. But I think that she herself, it was implied, worked a lot. And I think through her writing, you can kind of see worked a lot with people of color and worked a lot to try and end hierarchy in general. And it's very present in her poetry as well. And the Dominican Labor Party... I couldn't also I also couldn't find a lot of information on, but I think it could be controversial today and may not be what it originally was. Today, it's described as a center left social democratic political party. But I think that, you know, Alfre was what is called a Fabian socialist. And so she was very centered on workers' rights and like distribution of labor and stuff like that. So I don't know. She's an interesting figure and one who I think at least deserves to be talked about. Yeah. And and I think it's also important to note that like, because what you said there is really important that she was a really big figure in, in Dominica at the time. Uh, when we say that she kind of fell out of the eye of history, we mean from very much like a like Western US like white lens uh, in the Mm -hmm. sense that at at the time she was being published in larger magazines compared to Orwell and stuff like that and then from Mm -hmm. the white lens she fell out of view 
I don't know. I, I doubt that's actually true in like the Dominican Republic now, if she was actually that big of, you know, you know, since she was a big deal, but I couldn't say that for like a hundred percent certain. You are right. Google is not a wealth of information on this woman. <laughs> well, I think because Google, at least our Google searches probably come from a very white lens perspective. Exactly. Um, yeah. But both of the places where I think we initially found information about her, like I initially found information about her biography in like the Caribbean review of books. I'm not actually sure all of my it seems like at least um, from what a quick Google search shows, there's like one major scholar working on her work, Elizabeth Paravicini Gebert. So all of my sources are, are from her pretty much because she's just like dominating the scene. So I have a yeah. couple of scholarly sources from her and then one that she posted on the missing slate as well yes okay so do we want to oh before before we go into the poetry i want to talk a little bit because we are recording this on may day and today while we're recording this it's international workers day and international labor's day and so i think that this these two poems that we're going to read are not only important from an environmental perspective especially maggie's because maggie's really deals more with the environment than mine does although i think that mine kind of could be read not necessarily as a lens of not mine could be read in a way if you wanted it to, to be like a call to activism in general. I mean, it is a call to activism in general because I'm going to be reading the poem resistance. And I think that we need more activism in dealing with climate change, but yeah, I think it's great that we're talking about a, a socialist figure and someone who stood up for workers rights during this time. And I don't see anything like, I did not see in my history anyone getting mad at her necessarily for her socialist ideals. I do know that she was ousted eventually from the Dominica Labor Party. But from what I saw, and it might be because it's just one scholar who's doing all this research on her, what continually was quoted or what continually was written was that Black nationalism at the time called for it. And I don't know what sort of lens that's about and I don't know enough about the history of the Dominican Republic to know what that means or or why she was ousted from her political party but I didn't see anything directly controversial about her political beliefs yeah me either but again this is all from like not the most intense research ever done so please feel free to tell us <laughs> if you happen to know more about this figure or you know are Dominican yourself and just know more than we do because I will say this has been one of our more difficult research ventures i think yeah because usually we tend to like be able to skim the surface and find a ton of information about <laughs> yeah i don't usually have to jump to scholarly <laughs> to like google scholars so fast we are not um a research-based podcast we're just two people trying to analyze literature through our own noggins <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty much but but for real though that also means that especially this episode if you have more information than we do please send it our way yeah especially if you're dominican and you've heard of her before that would be really cool and i'd love to hear your perspective i think that'd be awesome if you're like this person is super famous over here i would love to hear about it okay so do we want to get into the poems yeah let's do it okay do you want me to go first yeah might as well Okay, I'm going to read the poem, Resistance. And I hope that you're all feeling the resistance right now. Today is the day. Yeah, don't cross the fucking picket lines. <laughs> and this, the living outside ourselves, the wrench, 
dragging our deep and comfortable roots out of earth sockets, out of the sweet home, into what wilderness and icy air of other men's danger, terror, and defeat? See us, stretched human gentle by the window, suddenly stung by a word, a postman's knock, a chord of music into remembered action. Watch us, unwilling to stir. Read the grooved frown. Which speaks divided loyalty and see how sad we lay our book, our sleeping child, our need for symphony and safety by, stiff rising like the wounded, straight to open the door which leads to a dark and troubled wood, knowing ourselves half lost before we find it. Against our cheeks, the tendrils of reproach whip in the storm. The leaves of the book blow wild for their lost reader. The infant screams, abandoned. The symphony fades. The safe walls hug no tenant. Reproach without reward. That is our choice. For in a world well-stacked with organized armies, we, spurning armchair trenches, join the guerrillas and plunge in the dark to seek that pilgrim band whose faces we shall always recognize. It's so good. She is so good. She's a really wonderful writer. <laughs> this is like, not to, the, the meaning here is more important, so not to get too into the craft. But for me personally, this is the kind of poetry that I just gravitate towards that's like so deeply image and metaphor driven and then ends with like a really intensely reality based call to action at the end. Like all of my favorite poets write this way. Uh, and when I was writing poetry, it was something that I tended to emulate myself, although never this successfully. Um, so on a personal note, I can't wait to dive into the rest of her poetry because it's just so like sink your teeth into a beautiful. Anyways, that's my aside. Yeah, I chose this poem because it's May Day and I'm really feeling the resistance, the resistance mood. And I really want to see workers appreciated, especially right now when a lot of us can't work, when a lot of us are unemployed, when we're heading towards a recession, especially right now when a lot of our essential workers don't get a fair living wage. But this was a beautiful poem because it talks about like the first line and this, the living outside ourselves. What I think that she's getting at out here, and I, as we've discussed before, am not the best at poetry analysis, <laughs> but what I think she's talking about here is the fact that in order to resist, in order to like go beyond and, and do any sort of activism, we it's really uncomfortable and we it's hard, right? Because like we want, we just want our families to be safe. We just want our personal lives to go well. We just want to be like working towards our own financial goals. Um, but in this poem, she talks about all of this domestic life, like the book and the sleeping child and the need for symphony and safety. And she talks about having instead to walk into like this dark, scary expanse and having to to fight, having to fight a losing battle, essentially, because that's what activism is, especially because it's usually done by people who are oppressed and people who are oppressed have more to lose and they're fighting a larger system. And I don't know if this poem, it could have also like related to herself because she did live a very posh lifestyle and she did have children and she did have to give up things like writing 
in order to go and fight this fight. Um, and she probably did face resistance as a woman, although I did not specifically read anything like that. But, you know, like she would have been facing a lot less resistance than somebody who was in the peasant class <laughs> fighting this fight. But it's still hard. It's still hard to go. And I don't know. That's something I think I feel a lot when I'm doing activism. Like sometimes it just takes too much energy and I just need to make sure that I have shelter and a place to stay. And, you know, I don't want to push the boundaries too much so that I can continue to make money so that I can continue to live. I think that in many ways, this poem could also be named Solidarity because it's so clearly about somebody who Right. In many ways, we talk about it as in like this fight isn't necessarily their fight. Right. But Mm -hmm. not only does fighting this fight better everyone and everyone's kind of positioning, it's also just absolutely the right thing to do. But to do it properly, you have to what is the phrase she used? You have to get out of your armchair trenches. Right. Like you have to Mm -hmm. actually go out there and be an active part of that resistance and lay aside your differences. Um and embody what she says at the beginning of the poem, right? Um, the wrench dragging our deep and comfortable roots out of earth sockets, out of the suite of home into what wilderness and icy air of other men's danger, terror, and defeat. Like, you have yeah. to embody as the more privileged person what the oppressed peoples are going through to as much as you possibly can in order to have that true solidarity and that true resistance kind of as a group together like you have to actually join the gorillas like she does at the end and she just says it so beautifully (laughs) she does but I also think so yes this is coming from like a privileged perspective but I also think too that resistance is hard even for the oppressed and that's why we're so yeah that's why we're so successful because like even the oppressed have you know we all have families to feed And we would all rather be focusing on our singular domestic lives. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, it's like a really fabulous balance between showing that privilege exists and that you need to, as much as you can put that privilege aside to fight with the workers while Mm -hmm. also showing that like, this life and be able being able to spend time with your children and being able to read the book and and use the symphony and the safety is what everyone deserves like she she's yes. able to so beautifully intermingle both of those messages together and it just feels like such a rallying cry maybe not necessarily to the workers but to everyone else who is just sitting idly by and letting this injustice happen you know and being like hello <laughs> yeah yeah Yeah, no, I agree. It's also interesting, too, because it strikes me as a kind of sadder cry, because when she talks about the fight, she describes it as wilderness and icy air and danger, terror and defeat, question mark. So it's not completely hopeless, but like it's described plunge into the dark. (laughs) We don't necessarily like gorillas in of themselves are ragtag armies. Pilgrims are spiritual seekers like none of these people are places that hold or none of the imagery used to describe the fight is necessarily like it's not secure it's not safe it's not secure it's not institutionalized it's literally without worth without reward like she says like it's Mm -hmm. a fight worth fighting even if you don't see the reward in your lifetime even yeah yeah so 
that's my May Day challenge to everyone. And I don't mean like protesting COVID orders, although I hope and assume that none of our listeners are doing that. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, let's fight for grocery workers and let's fight for the U.S. Post Office and let's fight for everyone to receive some sort of healthy living and for everyone to have basic security. Yes, because that's feminism. That's what that is. We're trying to end hierarchy. It's all the same fucking thing. And I think that unless we have anything else to say, we can move on to Maggie's poem. Do you have anything else to say, Maggie? No, I just think that going back to what you were saying, this in some ways is an episode that seems, I think, on the surface less connected to feminism. But this is, I think, where you really see the intersectionality of feminism and the way that it all, all of these things are so interconnected like you can't take down one without the other to a certain extent i think especially for like maggie and i we are the definition of white feminists you know like we're trying not to do those things in which we overlook people but we are two white ladies and we are also feminists and here we are talking about another white feminist so this is like a rallying cry to everyone to look out for other people because we know that we know that people who are more oppressed which isn't usually white ladies. Like, I mean, white ladies are oppressed. Don't get me wrong. But we're not on like the below, below hierarchy. We know that they often are the ones working. There are probably a lot of women right now working. <laughs> like the problem I think that I've really discovered throughout doing this show is hierarchy in general. That's why sexism is wrong, right? Because it's saying somebody is better than somebody else. So Let's work to end that in general. And I think that we're, we are looking at it through a woman's lens because we're like literally reading about it from this really kind of badass lady who did that. She was like, I got white lady privilege. I'm going to try and make this white lady privilege, uh, useful. I think it's, I think that's a really great segue into the next poem too, because I think that white feminism starts to come in to this place and is from my limited research of phyllis something that she ideologically seemed to struggle with a little bit in the sense that she like seemed to understand right like the different struggles that people of color and in her in dominica faced and stuff and like did call out her father for being racist and clearly didn't espouse those same ideologies but then also said things like she was a west indian of over 300 years standing despite her pale face which like true but, like, there's this marriage I that I see specifically in Nocturne where she struggles really with, like, whiteness and colonialism versus the people of color that she is surrounding herself by and seems to be attempting to fight for in the sense that, like, she identifies that all of this stuff is wrong but wants to be counted as, like, not the problem, almost. At least that's kind of a lot of how I read Nocturne, um, which is also a very beautiful poem, so... I guess without getting too far into it, without reading the poem, I shall read you the poem now and then we can talk more <laughs> about it. Harmony, Harmony looks like she agrees with that kind of general statement about, about this. Yes, I'm nodding. I don't know what to make about it because I don't know the history. Um, but yeah, I, I came across that quote about the pale face over and over and over again. So I don't know. I don't know. That's a strange thing. I do know that I don't know during this time period, but I do know that even white Caribbeans, especially because there was a lot of like interracial relationships during this time, sometimes 
in at least other parts of history were not as well respected as like white white people i don't know why Mm -hmm. so i don't know if that's ever something that she faced but yeah let's get into it (laughs) that i see in this poem specifically so nocturne Oh, warm white pallor of a tropic night. Firm stands the hills, washed by a crystal moon which hovers like some perfume-laden kite or drips and sways a carnival balloon. The milky clouds unfold their snow-dust pile, fair stand the hills. The moon floats low and drips intoxicating silver on an isle of dark seduction. Round her sable hips the sea, a pleated sparkling petticoat unfurls to to girdle closer. In a white delirium, we humans drift afloat within the pallor of a tropic night, our mortal shower- shadows gliding brown as bark, spangled with nutmeg, cinnamon, and lime. Rich songs assail the hidden glades of dark beyond the laundered landscape of delight. Oh, warm white pallor of a tropic night. That's a beautiful, but yes, I see. Yeah, it is a really beautiful poem. And I think to start, not in the easy place, but just to talk about it, like, the idea of love for an island really resonates with me through this poem. And, like, it's just so clear with her, like, gorgeous and lush, if politically charged descriptions of these landscapes that, like, she loves this place so much just for, like, what it is. And in some ways seems to, I think recognize the not in some ways clearly seems to recognize the effects and the changing of whiteness on this landscape that seems to be what the whole poem is about right is like this this whiteness that drips across this landscape um it's part of the tension that i see is that the landscape is so beautiful in some ways despite that um Mm -hmm. But coming from an, an environmental lens, right, like this is an ode to a physical geographical location that especially now is at extraordinarily high risk for climate change um, that she just super adores. So I guess I wanted to start there, but um, I feel like, you know, she writes a lot about colonialism. She's got whole poems dedicated to that topic like very explicitly but i see it a lot here you see whiteness in way described in ways that traditionally you know equate to purity but end Mm -hmm. up many ways also kind of obscuring the truth of the people in the landscape here um because the landscape is described and the people our mortal shadows are described as being um brown as bark right like nutmeg and cinnamon colors which in today's standards i know would be considered problematic uh there's lots of conversation about you know not using food terms to describe black people which is totally understandable but in this poem is the literal language being used and this idea of like the silver moon dripping like literally dripping onto the landscape and the moon is described as being white but she is also totally counterbalanced by the sable the black sea which is also like in a sparkling and gorgeous petticoat so like it seems like there's very much this tension between like trying to celebrate for her almost both aspects of the situation while also offering a pretty like romanticized i like takedown almost of colonialism and like acknowledging and understanding the ways in which whiteness has inherently changed this landscape and obscured it and laundered it which i think is really interesting because it reminds me so much of like 
sterilizing other cultures and things like that, not in a literal eugenics way, which is kind of, I think, a slightly separate conversation, but more in the sense of, like, making all cultures more white and assimilating and things like that and, like, laundering it, if that makes sense, to the point where, like, you have this white white color, this white fog almost over the tropical night that seems to be trying to push through. Yeah. It's also interesting, too, because the whiteness is always above the darkness and Mm -hmm. the darkness is like it's the shadow it's the darkness underneath the moon it's the sea it's the sea yeah with the sable hips which is also interesting language i feel conflicted because i do think that like she obviously loves this island and deserves to think of it as her home because it is the only place that she's known But (laughs) it's also like, and I do think that, especially for the time period, she was doing the work of like, at least perhaps, was doing at least some of the work to try and right the wrongs that her people have oppressed to this island. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to feel about it. But it is it is interesting what you're talking about, about the whiteness just kind of like floating over it. So do you think she's conscious of this or do you think like what what was your take? Can you s- use simpler language for me? I'm a little slow. Sorry. Yeah, I think she is conscious of it, but I think that ultimately she doesn't condemn it enough to seem like it's necessarily an inherently bad thing, if that makes sense. There are places yeah. where she does like talking about let me go back to the line talking about white in a white delirium we humans drift to float within the parlor of a tropic night right so like whiteness is a delirium it's not necessarily a good thing it distorts the way you see the world and it doesn't let you see truly what the tropic night is but Mm -hmm. like in other ways it's described as being really positive right with like this silver moon that drips down onto the ocean and things like that um which is kind of why it reminded, and the crystal moon, which is kind of why it really reminded me of white feminism as we talk about it today. Not necessarily in a feminist lens, but it's almost like the colonialist version of that, of her being like, for me, especially compared to a lot of her other poetry that does deal with colonialism, she does much more brutal takedowns of it. And this one Mm -hmm. ended up, as a reader, what I took from it coming a little bit more middle of the road, um partially i think because it is an ode to this like beautiful island night that she loves um but i definitely think that she was conscious of the the like use of whiteness on top and and the way that she um kind of constructed this poem in the language she was using that way um especially because in many ways like Unlike other poems that we've read together in general, but also read on the podcast, Blackness, the Sable Night is not, the Sable Sea is not an antithesis to the whiteness in a negative way. It's still being celebrated here. So it almost feels very like both of these things should be able to coexist. They're like two halves of the same whole. Um, Whereas when taking down colonialism, that at least by our contemporary standards, like, ain't the move, sis, you know? No. Okay. And it's also interesting, too. Okay, so I feel, I don't know if I read it that way. 
like I, I read if, if she is conscious of it, I hope my, my, I hope, I hope that this is her just kind of writing her feelings and maybe being like, I had a really great, pretty childhood because the whiteness is also very pretty. But maybe she's playing, maybe she's deliberately like trying to show us that the black people are always underneath. And like, I, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about it. But what bothers me, if that is the way that she's doing it, if she's saying that this can coexist, is that she uses the, she, she says at one point in a white delirium, we humans drift afloat. And then the darkness isn't, the darkness isn't humans. They're mortal shadows. So if she's saying that it can exist, it does come across directly as white supremacy to me in that way. But I don't know if she's playing off of the language of the time and the language before that, that white people often used to describe black tropical places as savage and inhuman. And if that's deliberate and yeah, I hope that she's not just directly being white supremacist. I don't think she is, and, and I don't know either if she's trying to say that, like, these two things can coexist. I just think in a lot of ways, she has, she uses, she does use a lot of similar language to describe both whiteness and blackness in this poem, yeah. kind of except for that one line that you just pointed out. So, like, it is mm-hmm. interesting, like, are we subverting the, ex- or, like, are we playing with the expectations of the time, or is there aspects of white supremacy in it? And it's kind of hard to to know, especially because, in that sense, that message would sort of really conflict with other things that she's written. This poem seems in some ways at odds with some of her other work, which means that I definitely could be reading it wrong. I tried to take it you know, separately from the other things that I had read from her, especially because I did not close read those things in the same way that I read this one. I just very much, I think, ultimately saw this as like a kind of a white feminist in the bad way called to action, you know, like I think ultimately that's where I landed on it. I think yeah. especially coming into contact with that quote that just keeps surfacing with her about her heritage and how she feels about it. And yeah, that's pretty much what I have to say about this poem. But it's also so gorgeous. Like she, there just seems to be a tension in this poem um, between the speakers, at least, understanding of the differences between white and black experience, but like Mm -hmm. not necessarily being like willing to separate herself almost from either side, right? Like, willing to totally condemn colonialism uh, and therefore like uphold the suffering of the people of color, if that makes sense. Like she's trying to side herself with the people of color and be like, this is bad in many ways, but like, it's not all bad, you know? Yes. Okay. So I have a discussion point because I think as we've established, Maggie and I have not, we're not Phyllis Shandafri experts by any means. We are people who did a Google search and are really just picking at the surface, but letting you know, hey, this lady exists. This is uh, what we found out uh, about her. So we can't definitively say what happened. And I'm also sure that like, as somebody living during this time, I am very sure that there was definitely some white feminism going on. Mm -hmm. I think that like, you know, Maggie and I are kind of educated, but I think that we both like struggle with white feminism. I think it's just something that happens. And I think that, 
I think it would be really, really unlikely that somebody could live and be white at this time and not be a little racist. Like, I think it's hard not to be racist, period. Not to say that, like, it's not hard to think that people are equal, but like, we have these things so ingrained in our society that we really have to deprogram ourselves and be like, hey, world. But with your reading of this, I want to ask you what you think, like, because my reading was that it was like, maybe, and this is because this is how I write as a human, right? Like, I can acknowledge that I have feelings that aren't logical, or that aren't morally okay, and write about them. And like, I still think that's valid. Like, I think my feelings can be valid, even though I can recognize that they're not right. And I wonder, reading this, that was kind of my perspective of, like, maybe what she was doing, given that we do know that she was anti-colonialism. So I want to know what your feelings on that. And that is also speculation. We don't actually know what she was doing. We don't know what Phyllis Shandafli meant for, for real. But, like, do you think it would have been, do you think that if this was her processing her own feelings about whiteness and colonialism, if that's okay and valid, given that she has so many writings that are calls to action? I don't know. To me, this does seem very clearly, like, trying to unpack that tension between whiteness and blackness, like, which is fine. And I also don't think it comes off, like, it's not as anti-colonialist as her other work, but it's also not pro-colonialism either it's not like to me she took like this hard left away from all of her other work and was like oh this is suddenly okay right like to me this just very much speaks as somebody who like is trying to find their place mentally in a world where like you've been programmed and conditioned to think one thing but in actuality like what you've been taught your entire life about whiteness and colonialism is wrong and like trying to piece all of those pieces together as a person you know like that's very much what I see here is just like trying to find that balance of your own identity in what you believe when you have to deprogram yourself you know like not that I think that she was maybe thinking of it in those specific terms because I think those are very contemporary terms about like deprogramming and stuff but like I see very much an emotional tension here between trying to like to acknowledge the fact that the way your world is was built off injustice and is wrong but like still trying to reckon with the fact that like it is your world you know and like parts of it for you were very beautiful yeah so do you think there's a way she could have expressed that in a published form that might have been more positive sorry i know that's like very weighty here maggie fix the poem (laughs) i don't think it's a poem that needs to be fixed like i think especially in the context of all of her other work that we've seen like i don't think it's a poem that needs to be fixed i think it's just a poem that needs to be read with a really critical eye because i think mm-hmm. that on the surface of it 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 like on the surface of it it just seems like a really nice poem about the landscape right that maybe has some racial overtones in like whiteness and blackness i don't think that you see the struggle of it for the speaker at the very least until you really dive into it a little bit more of like these tensions so i don't think she needed to necessarily do it in like a more positive way necessarily like this was just the poem that she wrote and i think that as readers it's our job to look at it and attempt to like parse out what she meant and what she was feeling which is also difficult because the speaker in this poem is kind of non-existent in some ways like it is just some genderless 
passerby who does not reference themselves or their thoughts and feelings at all. They're literally just describing what they see, and in describing what they see, there are political overtones to that. So it's like trying to understand a speaker who is very subtly working in their thoughts anyways, you know? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Which is also, like, you know, Maggie and I might not always do it successfully, but, like, that's what we're trying to do with this podcast and what I think people should do in general. Like, yeah, we can still read Hemingway, but we also need to come with it from the historical lens that Hemingway was a huge misogynist and not always a great person. And then be able to, like, parse that out. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but, like, I just don't, I don't know. I just I don't think this is a poem that needs to be fixed. I think you just got to kind of take it as what it is and attempt to to understand it regardless. That's beautiful. Okay. Do we have anything else we want to talk about with either of these poems? I don't think so. I really want to try and get my hands on the rest of her collection of poetry, though, just because, like, from a craft perspective, my God, do you have it? I kind of have it. I digitally have it. And I will see if I can somehow share it with you. Um, it's like through a website. So I don't know if I can download it. And I'm sorry, but I probably can't share it with the masses because of copyright law. And I don't want anyone suing me because I have no money. Yes. Yeah. So don't sue me. But yes, yeah, she's the poet who's really worth checking out, I think. Um, and just like the rest of her work and stuff and seeing if, if you can parse out more of her history than we could. Um, yes, email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. We would appreciate that. Give us your thesis. I want everyone's theses. Yeah. Um, but I think that other than that, that's kind of it for, for my end of the bite-sized bits. Um, do we have any homework from this episode? Besides the Mayday Solidarity that we've already talked about. Oh, yeah, that was going to be my homework. Um, <laughs> I'm really trying to research more what's going on in terms of unions and what I can actually do because it's COVID and, you know, like, it's just, it's a hard time for us all. So, like, if you can't research it, don't feel like you have to by any means. But I'm trying to look at, like, meaningful ways to do activism that don't result in violence necessarily and that are beyond voting and typical politics. You know, because it's one thing to, like, campaign for people you believe in. I think that's great, and it has its place. But um, I'm really interested in seeing now, like, how I can support grocery store workers, even though I don't necessarily have the funds to give them. Like, what can I do to push legislation along besides for supporting uh, politicians? Very nice. Very nice. Yes. What about you, Miss Mags? I, I similar actually, also about unions. I work in a field um, in museums generally where unions have historically never been a thing, and there are multiple museums right now that have certain sectors of employees that are trying to unionize for the first time ever. So I've been, you know, doing what I can to support them, but like not as actively as I probably could. So I'm probably going to do more research about helping the museum workers who who I know and everything unionize besides just like helping to sign their petitions and spread the word. Cause those are things are also important, but I know that there's more things I could be doing actively. And I mean, now is especially the time as the cultural sector is being hit with 
layoffs beyond anyone's wild imagination. So yeah, I guess mine's really specific, but it's the truth. That's the sector I work in and I, I want to show support. Yes. And homework for listeners, like do not feel the need to necessarily overextend yourselves or anything, but start small. Just do something small that makes you feel good. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like sign a petition. If you're if you don't usually sign petitions, maybe just like go sign one petition. Yeah. Uh, Donate a dollar to a politician or something if that makes you feel good. Every bit counts and everything that you can give is helpful and is valid. One hundred percent. Yeah. When Harmony and I do homeworks, please remember that they're specifically like for us as individuals. And if they inspire you, that's fantastic. But like. This is just based on our personal circumstances and what's up, which is why they're so wildly different every week, too. <laughs> what are you reading, um, Harmony? Oh, what am I reading? Okay. Oh, I'm reading. Oh, Maggie, 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 Maggie. Okay. I want to do this on the podcast someday. We have to commit, which is why I'm saying it on air. Children of Blood and Bone. It's beautiful. Um, I thought it would be a lot more young adult than it is because it's technically a young adult novel because it has young adult characters. It's not quite parallel, but like it sort of reminds me like Avatar, but in Africa, not at all parallel. Like it has similar storylines and similar vibes, if mm. that makes sense. Yes. Like the magic system is different, but like there are, there are similar themes explored. Um, and it's fantastic and everyone should read it. And I can't wait to like, I, I hope that I get through my book before it has to go back to the library. And then I can't wait to get like, go on to the other books. And I really hope we read it on the podcast. Yes. Very nice. I tried to read that and put it down, not because I didn't like it, but because I was listening to it on audio. And for me, audio is extraordinarily hit or miss. It's not my preferred method of consuming media. And so the audiobook just for me didn't really do it. So I put it down, but I'm still interested in circling back to it. Can I just, wait, wait, wait. I'm also reading it on audio and I just want to suggest that people don't necessarily do that because it switches perspectives all the time so it is like really really confusing i'm just doing that because i don't have access to the physical book right now all right maggie go i'm reading i'm thinking of ending things by ian reed which is a literary thriller that is quite fucking freaky so that's <laughs> what i'm reading usually i'm reading more than one thing but not right now i'm, I'm just reading this one good 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 all right uh next week we are talking about maggie's not going to be here so it's going to be a Harmony and Harmony's Mom episode. Oh boy, you guys, you don't even know what you're in for. <laughs> Alyssa Murray is coming to get you. Ani DeFranco, it's the Ani DeFranco memoir, No Walls. It's going to be less of a literary analysis episode because I also audiobooked this one and therefore do not have like text examples. And it's going to be about mothers and feminism and reading and it's all types of goodness, I hope. Also, I just want to let everyone know that we're going to be going on our like season end in about a month. And um, next season, we are looking into launching a Patreon. That's not ready yet. But if anyone wanted to, because we are no longer able to get sponsors because of the epidemic, if you wanted to like send a dollar our way, you can by clicking on our link. If you like go down to our show notes, there is a little link. Uh, no pressure. I get that the unemployment rate is like insane right now. No pressure at all, but just wanted to let you all know. <laughs> Speaking of housekeeping things, just as a heads up, our Instagram handle did change. So uh, 
RGBC pod is still us. So come check us out. Follow us on Instagram if you don't already. That's especially where I connect with people because Harmony really runs our Twitter. So if you're interested in what I'm up to, for the most part, (laughs) you'll find it there. That is true. And she takes really, really good photos. Yes. I'm sorry about the change, everyone. But there's like, we were getting so many notifications for another podcast that we had a very similar rebel, uh, like, Instagram handle too. So this is just better, I think. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just as a heads up so you all know that is that is us rgbc pod on insta yes okay is that it are we out yeah we're out goodbye everyone harmony will talk to you next week i'll talk to you in two weeks adios you can follow us at rebel girls book club on instagram at rebel girls book club on facebook at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Oh, all the